Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we, we throw ourselves at your mercy. Lord, it is only through you, Father, that we can sing praises. Father, it is through our prayer that we fight, Father, because we do not actually do it, but Lord, it is yours. Um, every battle that we have, Father, is yours to have. And so we graciously and humbly ask for your grace and mercy this morning. As we come and as we look at your word, Father, I just pray that it would go out, Father, and would not return void. That your spirit would be moving amongst us this morning, softening and drawing our hearts to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, this morning, if you are new, um, we will be going and finishing up or concluding uh, Romans 9. This year, we have been going through the book of Romans, and so if you're new to us, uh, that's where we'll be at this morning. For those of you who are not, some of you, I'm sure, will be pleased that today is the conclusion of Romans 9, while some of you may be a little bit saddened by it. But regardless... We're going to conclude this chapter today, and we're going to start today in Romans 9, in verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along. It says this, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though, their number of the, uh, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts has not, had not left us offspring, he would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law uh, that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Father, again, we are so grateful for your word um, and what it has to say. Father, help us again to humbly hear what your word is saying. Um, Lord, draw us to you through this, uh, through your word, through this particular text today. In your name we pray, amen.
All right, so to start off this morning, one of the things that I wanted to tell you all about is a type of mode or a mode of therapy um, that is psychoeducation. Now, the psychoeducation is a giant umbrella, and there's many things that fall within that umbrella. Um, but one that in particular that I think is applicable today is what is known as schema therapy. Now, this was a still particularly young type of therapy. Uh, wasn't developed until the early 90s, but it's still been very helpful. Um, schema therapy would often also fall under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. But schema therapy is a therapy that is used to address sort of uh, personality, um, the pathology of a personality from unmet uh, emotional needs in childhood that lead to schemas. So what is a schema? Schemas are basically the lenses in which we process or we take in information that happens around us and then we interpret it. And we interpret ourselves within that lens. And these are what schemas are. So the next question is, why in the world are we talking about schemas? Because I think as we read through not just Romans 9, 25 to 33 today, but as we've been going through Romans and as you continue to read through the Bible, ultimately the importance of which we read the Bible is of the utmost importance. To put it in a different way, we must best or to best understand the power of God's grace in his plan of salvation, we must correctly see it through the correct lenses. We must see ourselves through the correct lenses. You see, God has a sovereign plan in his salvation. His plan of salvation, it is sovereign. And it will display ultimately grace and mercy to those who believe. But we must know who we are in light of all of this and who God is. This is why we talk about the lenses in which we read not only this passage, but every passage through the Bible and every thing that happens to us. It is important as to how we interpret them as it happens. So today in our roadmap, we're going to look at God's active mercy. We're going to look at his justice and his righteousness in that justice. And then we're going to look at man's responsibility in God's plan of salvation. You see, to fully understand God's grace and mercy, we must truly see who we are and truly see who he is. So as we go on, I would pose this question to you. And that question is, what is man's true purpose on this earth? Before, though, let's look at God's mercy. God's mercy is both limitless and active. We read in verse 25, it says this, As indeed, he says to Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And to her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The question arises, how, brothers and sisters, 
do we best understand God's mercy. It is through the proper lens of who we are that allows us to truly understand God's mercy. We must understand, first and foremost, that humans are not neutral. That we were bent towards damnation from the very beginning. Paul has labored this point earlier in Romans, when he said in Romans 3, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. For all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 1 says this, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. To best understand God's mercy and grace, we must fully understand who we are. In God's infinite wisdom, he extends his mercy to us for our salvation. Mercy is a gift. Grace is a gift. These are things, when we talk about gifts, gifts are not owed to anybody. We freely give gifts when we give gifts. In the same way, grace and mercy are those gifts that God freely gives to whom he chooses. Again, we, Paul using the example here of uh, Hosea, the Hosea and Gomer. God extends his grace and mercy when he says, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. To her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. Where it says, You are not my people, you will become sons of the living God. Paul's using this example to express that now God has brought the Gentiles into. His, his covenant, or into covenant with him. How can we say this is done? It is only through his mercy. It is only when we lay our pride down and we see that God has mercifully extended grace to us for our salvation. I ask this question to you. What is it that humankind has ever done to deserve mercy and grace. If Paul has said in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses, what has any single human ever done to deserve grace? The answer is nothing. It is only a gift of God that has been bestowed to us. J.I. Packer says this, In the New Testament, grace means God's love in action towards men who merited the opposite of love. Grace means 
God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. We read in Titus 2, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live in self-control, upright and godly lives. Brothers and sisters, this is the importance of seeing things through the proper lenses. We must see what we were to the believer, what we were and who God is, and to the non, who we are and who God is. The story of Hosea. Hosea was commissioned to go marry a wife of whoredom, and so he marries Gomer. And they have a son together. And then Gomer went out and continues to break the marital covenant with Hosea and conceives two more children, a daughter whose name was as translated uh, into no mercy and a son whose name translates into not my people. And we remember now in chapter 3 what happens. Gomer has continued to live this lifestyle and she finds herself on the auction block in chapter 3. But what does Hosea do but to seek her out and to purchase her back into restoration. Brothers and sisters, this is the image of God's mercy that is actively seeking to save His people. As Hosea paid a price for restoration with his wife, so the father paid a price for the restoration of his people. And that is through Christ alone. It is in Christ in the death and resurrection of his son. Again, we must understand that we are not neutral in any of this. That we are born sinners and it is only through God's gracious mercy that he has extended to us that we truly get to see the depth and the breadth of his grace and his mercy and what that means for us. We mis or we uh, misinterpret, I guess, or we underestimate our own sinfulness. We think that it's not that bad. Brothers and sisters, our sinfulness is that bad. The Lord's active mercy is seeking to draw us into submission and repentance. We must stop looking to the Bible and trying to mold God into something that we think is what's best. We must read the Bible and allow the Bible to create the lenses in how we interpret what happens in the world around us. So, we've looked at the limitless and active mercy of God. Now, we must look at God's perfect justice and God's righteous justice. In verse 27 it says this, 
And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, and become like Gomorrah. Excuse me. One of the things that we've become very comfortable with when talking about the attributes of God is we've become comfortable with not talking about God's justice. From our perspective, it's very easy to say things like, well, that's not fair, or it's not right. Or we question why it has to be this way. Or if it even is this way. Again, it comes back to the importance of we must allow God's word to create and shape the world and how we interpret it. Paul quoting Isaiah here. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, had just been judged by God through the Assyrian people. And God could have allowed them to be completely wiped out, speaking of Israel. However, he has kept his covenant with them by preserving a remnant. Because I take you back to verse 6 in this chapter, which is this argument that Paul has been making throughout, is has the word of God failed? By no means. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he has kept it. When we talk about God and his holiness and his righteousness, we must understand that he cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness, A, and B, he cannot allow injustice to be unpunished. Because if he were, then he would not be fully just. Again, this is not a neutral people that uh, Isaiah or that Paul is using here in this illustration. These are people who were given the promises. They were adopted out of nothing. They were seen the glory of God. They were given the covenants. They were taught how to worship. Yet they continually broke the covenant with Yahweh. We love to say things like, it's not fair or that's so mean. Or why couldn't he have come with come up with a different way to do things. Because for God to be who God is, it has to work according to his perfect will. Even in God's judgment, he is merciful. Again, I remind you, the Old Testament, God has no problem wiping people completely off the face of the earth. In his judgment. Israel could have been that. Yet they were not because he made a covenant and he kept it. Even though they themselves did not keep that covenant. 
They did not keep their end of the bargain, yet God continued to keep his by saving a remnant. As I was studying this week, um, I came across this commentary, and I, I don't know how else better to say it than to just read it to you, what they said. So to quote this commentary, it says this. Here Paul quoted Old Testament verses to support the fact that God's sovereign choice and calling always includes the Jewish segment. The passage quoted in Isaiah makes it clear that in God's judgment on rebellious Israel, he, by sovereign choice, saved a remnant. Now we all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, these were a sinful, a wicked people. And we like to sit back and say, yeah, like, good job judging them. Brothers and sisters, we have the same bent towards the people of Sodom and Gomorrah apart from Christ. God has every right, had every right to destroy them as he did Israel. Yet what? He remained true to his covenant and he saved a remnant. Do you remember who the remnant was in that story of Sodom and Gomorrah but Lot and his two daughters? And God actively had to go inform them to to leave. Again, his mercy is active. In his judgment, he is gracious. As we talk about God's judgment, oftentimes it makes us uncomfortable or it creates a tension. Because for some reason, we believe that we know better or that we have some moral superiority. Brothers and sisters, we ought to tremble at the fury of God. It's not about doing good or bad when we speak in terms of eternity. It is about righteousness and unrighteousness. Man cannot be righteous apart from Christ. There is nothing we can do to be made righteous apart from Christ. And so you may do good or think you do good, but you do not do righteous things unless it is through Christ. And in the matter of eternity, good and bad isn't the proper words to use. It is righteousness versus unrighteousness. Paul Washer said this, He said, you may say God doesn't hate anybody and that God is love. No, my friend, you need to understand something. Jesus Christ taught and the apostles taught this. Apart from the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord, the only thing left for you is his wrath, the fierce anger of God because of your rebellion and your sin. 2 Peter 11 says this, Since all things are thus to be, to be dissolved, what sorts of people, what sort of people ought to be in your lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming day of God, because of which he, the heavens uh, will be set on fire and dissolved, 
and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, again, it comes back to how we are interpreting life, things that happen, our schemas, the lenses in which we see things. If we don't understand that we were totally bent against God and then that He graciously and mercifully saved us, then we miss out on so much in understanding what His grace actually is. Society today, some of the American church today even, I would say has lost its fear of the Lord. We must reshape our lenses because in order for us to be saved, there is something that we must be saved from. That is the judgment of God that is inevitable and will come. We must stop trying to create a God that we think He ought to be. And we must allow the Bible, the Word of God, to reveal to us who He truly is. So we've looked at God's mercy and His grace and how it is actively seeking to save His people. We've looked at what we've been saved from, which is His justice, which is righteous. But now, in God's sovereign plan, we must see what is man's responsibility. Starting in verse 30, it says this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It could be argued that Paul has labored in all of Romans, but especially in Romans 9. God's sovereign plan. We read back in the first chapter that it is the power of salvation. It comes through God. But he's already anticipated, well, if that's true, if God has elected himself a people and his plan is sovereign, then why wouldn't I just sit back and let everything come to pass? Why should we do anything? Because, brothers and sisters, yes, those are true. Yes, we also have responsibility to put our faith in him. It's always has been about Christ. There is no argument that this was a new thing when Christ came on the scene. It has always 
been about him. It has always been about faith and never about works. Back in Genesis, if you remember, when God made covenant with Abraham, it says he believed and it was counted to him as righteous. It has always been about faith in Christ so that we may receive his grace. Back in Psalms uh, 118, it says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Brothers and sisters, it is God's right to make his standard fully and utter righteousness to be in his presence. We've known this. And the way that we achieve this is not actually by our achieving of anything, but only through Christ achieving what he did on the cross. Again, it all is about the lenses and how we see ourselves and how we see God in this situation. The question has to be asked, why was Jesus a stumbling block for the Jews? Notice the language that is used here. When speaking of the Gentiles, it says that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. They had attained it. But Israel, who pursued it, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not reach it. Brothers and sisters, it is the same core that stops us today from putting our faith in Christ, and that is our pride. You see, when Jesus came and said, hey, that's great, you're following the law, but none of it will save you or make you righteous. Again, the goal here is righteousness, not good or bad, but righteous, fully perfect. That is the only thing that will allow us to be with him in heaven. And Christ said, you can pursue the law all you want, but it won't get you where you want to go. And so this sense of, well, I've been doing all of this. How can it be fair that he just comes in and says, well, that's all for nothing. And just willingly give out his righteousness to those through faith. You see, it is that pride that prevents us from seeing it how it really is. We have this self-righteous attitude that says either A, we can be righteous in and of ourselves to the point that we don't need Christ, or B, we don't really need to be saved. This is our pride at work. This is at the core of our sin. And Christ struck that when he came in and said, it is by faith alone that you will be made righteous. 
I take you back to the story of the prodigal son. We all have some picture of that. When the younger son takes his inheritance and runs off to frivolously blow it and do whatever he wants with it. But the older son who stayed back and he worked and he earned his inheritance only for the younger brother to come back and be fully restored his inheritance. Why, brothers and sisters, do you think that older brother would be upset? Because he stayed. He followed the rules. He did what he had to do to earn his inheritance. But I ask you, who's the... Who, whose inheritance is it to give? It's the Father's. To give to whom He wills. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, our, the mercy and grace that is bestowed upon us to make us righteous and put us in and graft us into Christ is freely given and offered to all who will believe. But we must believe. It is the pride in our hearts today that is the same pride in ethnic Israel's hearts that made him a stumbling block. Yes, we do play a role in God's sovereign plan. We have to submit to him. We must understand that apart from the the righteousness of Christ that is placed upon us when we put our faith in Him, we are utterly and truly damned. We cannot allow our pride to change how we see who we are and who God is. So has the word of God failed? Absolutely not. He has kept his covenant with ethnic Israel and saved a remnant where he did not need to. And he has done more than that. He has now expanded that covenant to us. He has included now not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. We will ask, why does it have to be this way? And to that I would take you back to what was preached last week in verse 22. It says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Nothing in this world apart from God deserves to be glorified. Not you, not me, nothing. 
And it is through his sovereign plan. It is through, excuse me, his plan and election that ultimately will glorify him at the end. We, however, brothers and sisters, we must live on mission. We cannot know who God has elected to be in his covenant. We must share the gospel with every single person any chance and help people to see the need for God's mercy and grace, that the need for Christ. When you shared the gospel a hundred times with some person and they've rejected it, brothers and sisters, share it a hundred and one times and a hundred and second and pray that the Lord draws them and shapes their hearts. But we first must humble ourselves. We first must humble and see truly how desperately we need Christ and where we were headed apart from Him before we can truly share His mercy and grace with others. Uh, worship team, you can come up. So as we close, we go back to the original question that I asked you, <clears throat> excuse me, at the beginning of the sermon, which is, what is man's number one responsibility on this earth? Now, I'm sure there's a catechism somewhere that will, like, lay it out perfectly for you. But I'll tell you, ultimately, man's number one job is to glorify God. And what better way to do that than to say, in the end, He drew me to Him. He changed my heart so that I could put my faith in Him. And then He saved me from His, justice, from his righteous judgment. Romans 11, um, excuse me, 36 says this, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. I would ask you, brothers and sisters, what is the perspective that you are looking through life? What lens? A humanistic perspective that says we don't need to be saved? Or a biblical perspective? that says we were all once sinners bent towards destruction and God in His infinite mercy and grace 
saved us. It is freely offered to all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for your many blessings. But, Father, thank you for your mercy. Father, for your grace that you have extended to us when we did not deserve it and we did not need it. We needed it, but we did not deserve it. Father, it is our mission to bring glory to you. Father, give us a understanding of how deep and how great your mercy is. Father, every day, renew our minds of that, of who we are and who we were and who you are. We ask these things in your name. Amen.